Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Kenneth Tanner. Kenneth is a pastor of Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He writes for numerous websites and magazines, including the Huffington Post and Sojourners. Ken Tanner, welcome back to the podcast. Awesome. Good good, to see you. Good to see you and hear you via Skype. Yep. uh, I wish Skype was sponsoring us. Like, hey, via Skype. But uh, maybe someday. Then they they would do some jingle or some ad, you know. They had this thing on Saturday Night Live. Synaxis is partially, you know, um, brought to you by Skype. They had this uh, this thing on Saturday Night Live called the Potties. It was a it was a it was a skit like on basically podcast awards, and one of them was best transition to a sponsor ad. It was really funny. They were like all these absurd kind of like absurd yeah. podcasts, and, like then too absurd. It's great. That's awesome. So here we go, Kenneth. We got an interesting. We're coming into the end of the church year. You know, do you say when, during Advent? Do you say Happy New Year to your congregation? Sure. Nice. I like that. All right. So we're winding down, though. Year B is winding down. And here, our first reading is 1 Samuel 1, 4 through 20. And this is the, the basically the setting out the stage, setting the stage for the birth of Samuel. And we have this sort of kind of, uh, you know, rivalry here, right? We have Hannah and, um, or we have Hannah, like, basically being the woman that is not, uh, is not having you know children here um and she is troubled by this and her husband you know cares for her clearly but uh she you know she wants um she wants to have a child i guess he's got multiple wives here and no he does yeah yeah he's got more wives so the rivalry kind of thing here and, and he's given her a double portion of the sacrifice because he's in like he's in love with her although the the other woman is the one who's given him all of his children and there's that great line where, where she's so sad. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Where, where, why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? And she wants, um, you know, she wants a child and she's, she's praying and God gives her uh, a child uh, eventually. And the child was named Samuel. And she calls him that because she asked him of the Lord. Yeah. I, I, ben Myers uh, in his new um, commentary on the creed uh, in the section about, um, you know, Christ being born of a virgin, um, you know, sort of wonders out loud, uh, you know, about people who um, struggle with the story of the virgin birth. And he, the point he makes is that the whole of scripture is a story of miraculous birth. Yeah. You know? And, you know, it's, um, so when you take the, you know, the miracle of, of you know, um, Christ's conception by the Spirit, um, it's just part of a lot. I mean, obviously, it's a very different sort of conception, but, but you know, it's in this long history of God um, bringing children to barren women. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because we're, we're the interesting thing, I think, 
where where Christ is kind of the antitype here, uh, you know, the type and antitype. There is this miraculous birth, but Mary's not barren, right? And she's no, not, no. Lo- and she's not looking for the child. Like no, in, in these no, other instances, no. where like Sarah and Hannah, the women are, are are unable to conceive, and they want a child, right? They they oh, definitely they definitely, definitely want children. right because it will it it will advance their hopes, their their status sociologically. Every, everything's tied to it. Everything is literally tied to it. But Mary's so. life is problematized by the child. So yeah. not only not only does she not pray for and ask for this child she no, her life is complicated yeah no, her life scandalized. is scandalized so it's it's this interesting thing about like the the radical nature of grace that that not only it, it, is this th- is this this birth gratuitous it's not unlike the other ones it's not asked for it's not anticipated and and there's a scandal to it the way that, you know so it's ultimately you know the scandalous you know nature of, of grace and and then uh you know of course she you know, Mary, I think probably someone who really knew the scriptures well, um, you know, ends up by the time she gets to, you know, to reciting the, the saying the Magnificat, um, you know, she she is along with these other women who celebrate these, you know, miraculous births that happen to them, you know, interpreting it within the larger history of her whole people. And um, so even though it, it scandalizes her, or it's, it's, the situation is a scandal. She herself was not scandalized. She sees the spiritual truth of, of what's happened to her. Um, but getting, you know, I don't want to like gloss over too much the, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, you know, multiple, you know, plural marriage thing that's going on here. And, uh, I have a friend, um, who, uh, Alex McManus, who uh, is a brother of a man who started a, a pretty large work in Los Angeles, um, called mosaic but we're friends here in detroit and in fact he started that work with his brother but um he talks about how you know monogamy is how things started out you know but you know culture tries these experiments we 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 had a long history of trying plural marriage which is reflected in the scripture and i think it, it what alex says is that just history proved plural marriage unworkable you know it doesn't it's it leads to all sorts of rivalries. It leads to all sorts of competitions. It leads, in fact, to um, you know violence and um, and uh, so that uh, getting back to this original intention of God, the man should leave his family and cling to his wife. Right? Um, is the the scriptures are show this experimentation going on and God's working around it and blessing it and, and working around our stupidity. But, you know, in all these blessings, like, uh, you know, Samuel and, 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 um, and Samson and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Isaiah, you know, come out of all of this. uh, But uh, it's still, um, it's still very problematic. Yeah. It's interesting too. Peter Lightheart in his great little commentary called a son to me, Said notes this. He says that he notes how this is a story of rivalry as well as barrenness. That as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that Hannah was part of a faithful remnant, one of those who continued to pour out her heart in all its bitterness before the Lord. There were others. The men who objected to the practices of Hophni and Phineas stood in the company of Hannah. This is in chapter two, the favored one. But the yeah. faithful remnant was exactly that—a remnant, weak and and beggarly by comparison with the strong and well-fed priests, and even the stronger and better-fed 
Philistines. Elkna's family was a microcosm of Israel, divided between the rich and apparently fruitful nobles and the poor and needy who made their home in dust and ashes. In Hannah's transition from bitterness to joy, we see on a small scale the effect that Samuel would have on the whole of God's barren bride, Israel. Samuel would make the barren, unfruitful remnant rejoice in children because he would replace the wicked priests. Wow. He's so good. Light, Lightheart's amazing. Yeah, and then he goes on and says this, which is really interesting, by way of sort of Bring con- it. contemporary applications. Many believers in churches today find themselves in the situation of Hannah. The favored ones, the remnant earnest to remain faithful to the Lord and his word, suffer because of indifference or active persecution from corrupt leaders. Eli and his sons preside at the sanctuary, and all the big churches, the big budgets, and the big libraries are at Shiloh. Uh, Penaniah seems mm. to be the fruitful one, while Hannah remains barren. Seminaries, pastoral internships, leadership seminars... All these have their place in overturning the situation. Since we are a barren people, however, our hope for a new for new husbands is in the one who raises the dead and in him alone. And our first task is to plead with him to open the womb. Wow. I I love all the that's great. I love all the wonderful little details. Like, you know, she promises to make um Samuel a, a Nazarite and then he won't drink, you know. And then the very next you know, moment Eli's watching her in her silent prayer and her contemplation. She's not voicing the words, but she's moving her lips, which is unusual, right? Usually when we're praying silently um, and not speaking, we don't mouth the words, but she was actually mouthing the words. And Eli thinks she's drunk. You know, I love that, right? It's, it's you know, she's talking about him not being drunk, but then Eli thinks she's drunk. And it's, um, like, it's like at Pentecost when they say you know, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's I, only nine in the morning. I, yes. Yes. I thought I thought it's kind of a little bit of a, it's 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 evidence to me of some of a kind of epiclesis that's happening. Right. Yeah. Um, of a visit. To, we're not supposed to. We can explain. It just means, a you know, the Holy Spirit falling and coming down. Um, and so uh, how how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine and. She's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not drinking. I've, I've got this, you know, terrible pain in my heart, and I'm crying out to God. Um, and you know, don't regard me as someone who's just, you know, you know, uh, wasting my time in the precincts here. But uh, you know, I, I have a real petition, and um, it's, uh, it, it's interesting that he, he, he says, go in peace. And I, I was speculating a minute ago with a woman who preaches in my church, you know, is. Is he like trying to get her out of there? Like, is he bothered by her? And he just kind of says the blessing as she departs, kind of like, like, um, he just goes through the motions or is he genuinely moved? Right. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's you know, obviously we have to speculate, but regardless, God is faithful. He's acting. Um, he's present and, um, as at work. And then I love how it's like, this detail. So she leaves, goes to her quarters and has, a wonderful evening with her husband and her countenance was no longer sad. Um, you know, it's like, it's like she, she really trusts the word of the Lord. You know, she just goes back and decides I'm going to love my husband. He loves me. And, uh, and, and we don't find out until later, of course, is in, in any human situation, she is pregnant, you know, yeah. and she, she goes on, but she just decides to be content and believe God. So, Don't stop believing
going to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, and, and 19 through 25. I think this, there's the optional 15 through 18, which, I mean, why wouldn't you just read those other verses anyway? But sure. <laughs> but yeah, and it's interesting, because I was, as you were saying, I think there's this, here we have this, again, the theme of priesthood throughout Hebrews, and you have the sense that, you know, this contrast where priests stand day after day offering the same sacrifices that never ultimately can take away sin. But when Christ offered this once for all sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Um, and since then, he's been waiting until the enemies would be made a footstool under his feet. And then we have this this conclusion, like, uh, again, to, to trust God, just like you're saying with, with, with Hannah, that the, 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 the therefore, you know, that the, what should be the consequence of this reality is that we should have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened up for us through the curtain, through his flesh. And since he is this great high priest, we ought to have the full assurance of of faith and and spur one another on. We hope without wavering, encourage one another to love and good deeds, not neglect me together. So there's a sense in which the consequence of the knowledge of the priesthood of Christ, right, ought to be faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. I I um I, f- I started following Sarah Condon after you guys were all together at um the Mockingbird retreat uh in New York this year in the spring. And uh, she posted a photo um on I think it was on Facebook of going to visit Evensong last night at Calvary Episcopal Church in New York City. I guess one of their favorite places to go, and she loves the signs that they put up and the sign said at the top of the sign, it said, enjoy your forgiveness. Um, and I, I just love that. I mean, it, you know, and I think that's what Hebrews is saying here. It's like there, there is one who has gone in and now the law is written on your hearts and, uh, where there's, where there's forgiveness of sin, uh, there's no longer the need for an offering. And it, it just like embracing in confidence uh, the forgiveness that's granted and now walk in love. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting too. You know, one of the things, you know, you have all these old medieval kind of disputations, right? Like, can God make a mountain so heavy he can't lift it? Or, you know, these sorts of things like, but the thing is the one thing humans can do that, that God can't is tell somebody what it feels like to be forgiven. Yes. And that part of the enjoyment of that forgiveness is is the sharing of the availability and the free offering of that forgiveness and grace. Yes, and our our mutual friend um, Jason Michelli was making a point in his sermon yesterday about forgiveness, and he was saying, you know, when we think about doing you know the works of God, and you know we're we're always thinking like we're preaching, especially preaching, you know, feed the poor, you know. Um, uh, and clothe the naked and so forth. And we do that for a very good reason, because that's what the Lord talks about. But, you know, there is a sense in which anyone could be motivated to do that for just human decency. And Jason was saying that the one thing that we have to offer that is, you know, you have to actually trust um, in the, the, the sacrifice of Christ is we, we have forgiveness to proclaim. That God for God has forgiven our sins, you know, and, and 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 that's very unique, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah, it is, and it's it's what everybody's yearning for, right? I mean, there there is like everybody lives, right? Either needing to be forgiven, right, or or also struggling with needing to forgive. 
you know, like that the, the forgiveness because we live in a in a in a world soaked in sin that we all are either you know taking turns being victims or victimizers, you know, that we are all causing uh, occasion for forgiveness to be needed, or you know, or the recipients of that cause. And 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 he wants us to walk in full assurance and to to have this experience of, of not having this, you know, evil conscience that's weighing on us and um the body of our sin that's weighing on us, but to to you know just have this unwavering hope. Um because the one who's making the promise of forgiveness is faithful even when we aren't. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. I love this. I love Hebrews. I'm really fascinated by this idea that's out there. And, it, you know, it's perhaps as, um, you know, sort of new and controversial as, as Doug Campbell's, uh, interpretation of the set for several chapters of Roman, but that, that, um, the author, uh, the authors of Hebrews were Priscilla and Aquila. Have you heard about that one? Uh, I have, I have not heard that before. Nah, yeah, yeah. Sounds it's good. A really beautiful book. Sounds good to me. I'm not against it. <laughs> <laughs> Gospel here. We got Mark 13, yeah. verses 1 through 8. We have Jesus coming out of the temple and saying, you know, look what large stones and what buildings, his disciples, look at these buildings and what large buildings there are. And Jesus says, you know, do you see these? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. And then he's sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and Peter, James, and John ask him privately, when is this going to happen? And he says, be sure that no one leads you astray, that many are going to come and say, I'm he, and and they're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed that this has to take place, but the end is still to come for nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes, famines, but this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Yes. So interesting. Yeah, interesting that, that, that you know, because you, you have this, because in Hebrews it says, you know, we can enter through the sanctuary, the torn through the curtain, you know, the torn away through the curtain, the curtain which is his flesh. Here you have Jesus saying, you know, uh, you know, you think of the other saying about, you know, if if uh, if you tear it out, if you tear this down, I'll rebuild it in three days, kind of thing. He like him being the new temple. So here you have again him looking at the at the temple, and and the temple looks so spectacular, right? And yet Jesus is thinking that ain't nothing, really. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. No, like, it's not. Like I'm it's the temple. I'm the temple that will last forever. Yep. I was I was listening to Frederick Beekner in downtown Chicago one time at Fourth Presbyterian. I don't know if you've ever been there. I have been to Fourth Pres a couple times. Yeah, it's a really beautiful building, and um, but you know, small compared to. I love architecture. It's very, it's very, it's very tiny, right? Amongst the tribes of of it, it's of all the buildings in the area, it's quite small. And yeah, yeah, yeah. When you think of yeah, it, right, compared to the buildings you, around it, yeah, it is. When you walk. When you walk, and of course it has a wonderful courtyard, we could talk about it forever, but you you walk out of this ornate situation and I, um, and meditating on the words of Beekner and the questions and things was awesome. And 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 what happens when you walk out the doors of First Press is you is you have this monolith in front of you. This it's the 
um, the John Hancock Tower, right? And it's this massive. And it and as you as you step out, there's this mountain in front of you. And um, the I, I was stepping out of there that night, and it just came to me those you know all all of those prophecies in Revelation about the mountains that will be leveled, you know, and I love architecture and I love these large buildings and we have them all over the world. Um, but they are sort of monuments to kind of, um, I don't know, to, to human achievement there. Um, there's just a massive quantities of money invested in them. Uh, they, they are symbols of all this merchant, um, you know, really un sort of un, not in, not entirely clean merchant, uh, you know, an exchange that's going on, um, and uh, that is being called into judgment in Revelation. Um, and it, you know, it's a tough sermon to preach in America. Um, but you know, uh, there's there's a lot of passages in Revelation that say that you know the, our economics are ungodly, right? And you know, an economics that forgets the poor, an economics that forgets the oppressed, an economics that forgets the worker. And that some of our architecture does come, in, in fact, this is not an historical anomaly. I mean, a lot of the best architecture in the world comes on the backs of, you know, cheap labor and the exploitation of other people's, you know, um, energy in order to accumulate to yourself vast wealth. And then we build these monuments to it. Um, so I had this like... Um, this feeling um and it's kind of like the disciples here where they're like my these buildings are so large you know and jesus is like well hang on you know they're not sticking around and uh when i come i'm going to level all of this you know and um uh so anyway yeah uh, yeah think- yeah and that's interesting you point out because also right before this is this there's a, this story you know the widow we have the the the, the widow right earlier her might her might yeah. And this sort of the people at the temple living off of, you know, the, these contributions of people, most of whom are probably not, are not people of means. And so you have this kind of uh, contrast that the, the disciples were remarking at the temple, having one view of it and Jesus having sort of seeing the dark side of it. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, the, the, the temple being this um, this place where, you know, God, I mean, obviously God uses to be in communion with his people um, and, it, and it, it serves a purpose. But even it, you know, is. Um, is now transcended in this one um, in whom all economies and all weights and all measures and, and, and all transactions are, um, you know, love and, and not based upon um, self-aggrandizement. So um, yeah, it's a, you know, we can love these things and admire them and look at their beauty and talk about how wonderful they are. But there, there is this other side to it, and I, I, I know I'm uncomfortable even talking. I mean, it feels uncomfortable talking about it, but I think it's something that we ought to preach, you know, about and and understand that um, that it's all under judgment, you know. So. Yeah, it's interesting too because it, it, you know, if Jesus is looking at this, if the author is saying Jesus here is predicting the events of 70 A.D., you know, the ultimate destruction. Correct. That that's right. not the end though. He said that's just the right. beginning. Like that that's that right. that is just one more chapter in the ongoing no, struggle of sin, be... evil, death, and God's future glory. You know, and he's and he goes on to describe the next two thousand years. And you know, there's nations rise up and nations fall, and 
there's there's earthquakes and famines and and and, and 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 that's the story of the world you know i mean that's the story of the world and um you know i i was raised in a culture in which you know of course we thought that jesus was coming back and in our lifetime and, and there are many people that have thought that but you know as i've gotten older and i've you know i've, I've been exposed to other ways of looking at these prophecies um, and other ways of thinking about the end um, it's interesting to think about, you know, uh, there literally could be thousands of more years before the parousia, you know, and um, uh, yeah, but but in the end, um, he's he's the faithful one and he is going to uh, to bring about peace and bring about his kingdom. Um, and and the, the birth pangs of all of this history are going to lead uh, to a to a to a final moment in which God makes all things well, and that's a great mystery. How does He do it? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting that Don Jewell, who uh, was professor at Princeton Seminary, in his commentary on this passage, he says the immediate future promises suffering. The immediate future promises suffering and agony, but these are signs that God's promised reign is near. A new age is to be born. In living in such a world, everything depends on knowing what suffering means. Or better, mm. where life is headed. Jesus offers no interpretation of suffering that suggests some positive function. Much of the difficulty in life is rather due to the bondage of a world that has no room for such a one as Jesus. The story of his own fate at the hands of the Jewish and Roman authorities only confirms the sketch of a world whose most noble and respected authorities will regard Jesus' disciples as enemies. For those with eyes to see, however, signs of the demise of these institutions are already visible. The temple curtain tears at the moment of Jesus' death. Those who, whose adherence to the temple requires that Jesus be rejected will themselves be rejected. Not one stone will be left on another. The history of promise, though hidden deep within a future that looks dark and foreboding, will finally deliver. The sun will rise on a new world when the sun returns on the clouds of heaven to gather the elect. All will see. Is there reason to believe such promises? The truthfulness of the good news is invested precisely in that question. And we don't even plan this stuff. And we just get together and like you have your quotes and I, <laughs> I mean, it just sounded like we just like we we like scripted the whole thing. It did. And it did. It's just uh, we're it's, it's it's always fun to do this with you, Ken. Hey, man. Good times. As and, always. And blessings in your preaching, my friend. Blessings on everybody else that's out there preaching. Whoever you are. God's peace. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes. Give it a rating write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again for being on the podcast and thank you again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well. 